Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. It's such a pleasure to see the um, auditorium so full. It's a, it's a wonderful occasion for us. I'm Steve Simpson, the academic director of the Charles Perkins Centre. We're here to talk about type 2 diabetes. And we had our first Australians living for 60,000 or more years on this continent in perfect health, um, but with a change in diet that coincided with the arrival of those of us of European origin, um, things have not gone so well, but nor have they for the rest of the um, population of Australia and the developed and increasingly the developing world. We have a real challenge in metabolic disease and type 2 diabetes. So what we're going to do this evening is take advantage of a, a really important event, and that is the bringing together of the team, or at least many of the key members of the team, that have led the world's largest lifestyle intervention study um, to prevent type 2 diabetes in individuals at high risk. And that's known as the preview study. It's, it's, it's been conducted across five different countries. It's been a massive body of, of work. It's looked particularly at the influence of exercise and diet, um, and in particular in relation to diet, um, the impacts of protein and carbohydrate in the diet. You'll hear a bit more about that set in the context of the rest of this evening. So the way it's going to work is I am first going to introduce Professor Jenny Brand-Miller, who's one of our most treasured and distinguished scientists here at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. And she will speak for about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, after which we're going to convene a Q&A session um, with three distinguished um, participants, two internationals and one local, and I'll give you their biographies briefly after Jenny speaks. And then we'll wrap up and um, all go back into the, the night um, better informed and hopefully um, with a healthier future. So I, it now really just um, leaves me to introduce Jenny Brand-Miller. Now, Professor Jenny Brand-Miller, or GI Jenny, as many of you will know her, um, is a very distinguished professor of human nutrition here at the University of Sydney um, in the Charles Perkins Centre. She has had a long and distinguished career um, for which she was elected to the Australian Academy of Science a year ago, which is an extremely difficult thing to have happen to you. Um, and that was in recognition of her career's work in glycemic index, the control of, of sugar levels, um, the role of carbohydrate in the diet in translating ultimately into changes and in the change in time over um, uh, periods after eating um, of glucose levels in the blood following consumption of different types of carbohydrate. So the glycemic index is very much um, coupled to Jenny's name, hence GI Jenny. So Jenny is going to um, speak to us, and she'll, among other things, introduce the preview study for which she was the uh, Australian coordinator, principal investigator of the, um, the international study. So please welcome Jenny Brammiller. Thank you very much, Stephen, for the lovely introduction. So tonight I'm going to talk to a few topics. Very quickly, the statistics about type 2 diabetes. I'm going to show you how you can calcul or calculate your risk of developing diabetes, some of the previous lifestyle intervention studies, and what we did in preview, and what's special about pre preview and what we found. And then spend a little bit of time asking the question about how can we translate previews findings to the real, real world. And then a short two-minute video at the end, we're going to finish with our participants having the final word. So first, a few stats. Today, 280 people roughly 
in Australia, went home knowing that they had a diagnosis of diabetes. It will be something that makes them a bit sad if they're like my dad when he was diagnosed. He didn't want to tell anybody. He told his two children, myself and my sister, confidentially and asked us not to tell anyone else. It, diabetes means you've got higher risk of developing heart disease. It's primarily a vascular disease and it includes loss of kidney function um, and complications which interfere with um, visual function and can cause blindness um, in the end. So very serious disease. Nerve damage, amputations of toes and feet, very seriously. And so Gestational diabetes, which is diabetes in pregnancy, now affects up to one in five pregnancies. And that can have effects which carry on in the offspring and future generations of the offspring, which increase their risk of being obese children and having diabetes in childhood or even early adulthood. But all of us, the good news is, can do something to prevent it, to prevent type 2 diabetes. But in the process of preventing type 2 diabetes with lifestyle intervention, what you'll do is increase your chances that you won't have dementia, that you won't have heart disease, that you will enjoy um, your third age and your grandchildren for a lot longer. So there's good reasons to start now. I'm going to go through the Diabetes Australia's risk test. This is something that takes one minute of your time, and I'm going to do myself. I'm not allowed to do you because I haven't got ethical approval to, you, to do you. So I have to um, – where is it? All right, so I'm going to get up close and personal. I have to tell you a few things about myself. I'm the wrong side of 65 um, years of age, so I clicked that one. Um, I'm female and I go to next. And I'm not of Aboriginal um, origin and I press no. So next, I am Australian and very proud to be Australian next. Um, have either of your parents, brothers or sisters, been diagnosed with diabetes? Well, both my father and his mum, my grandmother, have had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And my sister looks like she's got prediabetes as well. Have you ever been found to have high glucose, for example, in a health examination or during an illness? And the answer is yes, I have been given that several times. So are you taking medication for high blood pressure? No. And do you currently smoke cigarettes? No. And next. And do I eat vegetables and fruit every day? And I can honestly answer yes. And um, honestly, on average, would you have at least two and a half hours? That's 150 minutes of physical activity um, per week. And the answer is a very firm yes. Something I've done since I was a teenager on my father's um, instructions was get at least 20 minutes walk-in per day. 20 minutes, it's really achievable, and 30 minutes is pretty easy too. So, yes. Next, um, my waist measurement in centimetres or inches. Well, I, I happen to know that, that I'm less than 88 centimetres. And <clears throat> if I look at my risk profile, you might be shocked. Um, my risk profile gives me a score of 17 out of a possible 20. I'm at very, very high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. But I'm standing here without diabetes, or I'm standing here because I believe in lifestyle. I believe in living a healthy lifestyle, and that includes a good diet and physical activity. So then you see your responses all tallied up here. You can see where most of the points, some of them are not modifiable, like my age, um, my family history, but 
some six points come from the fact that they have seen a high fasting glucose. And then if you go on, you can have a look at Diabetes Australia's website to see what you can do about diabetes prevention. Um, and we'll leave tonight with a better idea of how you can prevent type 2 diabetes and the whole list of other chronic diseases, including, um, including dementia, because diabetes might frighten you, frighten you, but dementia frightens most of it, and the, the C word, cancer, as well. So it applies to most of the different sorts of cancer as well. So the first diabetes prevention study was a Finnish study that was done in 2001, and they published it in the best medical journal in the world, the New England Journal of Medicine. The study design of this Finnish study, the Finns do lots and lots of beautiful studies, particularly in nutrition. Um, they took 500-odd middle-aged, overweight adults who had impaired glucose tolerance, which means that when you give them a 75-gram glucose drink, their glucose has trouble, their blood glucose has trouble returning to baseline. They took those because they knew they had a high risk of developing diabetes in the next three years. They randomized them to two groups, an intervention group that received a special specially designed intervention and a control group who got usual care. And usual care means they went to the GP once a year, they were given some oral and written instructions about following a healthy lifestyle. But in the intervention group, they had one-to-one -one care from a health professional. They had five goals to reach to reduce their weight by 5%. So if they weighed 100 kilos, they had to lose 5% of their body weight, which is five kilograms. They had to reduce their fat intake to 30% of energy. They were shown how to reduce their saturated fat to 10% or less of energy, to increase their fiber intake, I think it was to 30 grams a day, and to increase their moderate um, physical activity. And moderate physical activity means, a, you know, a nice walk where you can still talk with the person beside you for 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Now, I want to show you what they found in the Finnish study. So I'm going to show you the proportion of people in each group that remained diabetes-free, okay? So what you can see is that there were fewer people in the intervention group um, who developed diabetes. They were, they were diabetes-free over those um, six years. So sorry, some people, some people went to um, a total of six years during that study. So you can see this is a very big reduction. And what they actually showed was that the more goals they meant, the more goals they met, the greater the chance that they did not get diabetes. So we could, you could call it a dose-response effect. The more they, they achieved, the better. There are other diabetes prevention studies now. There was another one from the USA, which was bigger, called the DPP. And by coincidence, they also showed a 58% reduction in the risk of developing diabetes. They also had a group that took a drug called metformin. And that group alone, no other lifestyle intervention, just the metformin, was 31% reduction. And there's been a big study from China as well, um, published in 2008, and they saw the lifestyle intervention reduce the risk by half, and they also did a 20-year follow-up. And what they found was extraordinary, that the reduced risk was still present. It was like... Um, the beta cells, the cells that produce insulin that we want to be working well, um, they had a memory of that lifestyle intervention, which persisted for a long period of time. So, preview. Let's get on to preview. It was, I call, a landmark multinational study 
because none of the other studies looked at multiple countries at once. We were also the first study to compare um, two diets and two exercise strategies, so four intervention groups. And we also were the first to use what are called meal replacements, which to most people we call shakes. They're specific sachets which you make up into with milk or water and provide a set number of calories and micronutrients. So they were a mechanism that hadn't been tested before in the context of diabetes prevention. So Preview had eight sites for the adult study and I'm going to show you the flags and I wonder how many can identify the flags. I know there's at least one person down there. That's the Danish flag. That's the Finnish flag. That's the Netherlands. Um, UK, that one's easy. Do you know what that one is? Spain. Um, do you know what that one is? That's my husband knows, Bulgaria. Um, and there you know, and of course, um, Australia and New Zealand. So the aims of the preview intervention study in, was to find a more effective or more efficient way to reduce the risk of diabetes. And to determine whether there was differences between two diets, one being a higher protein, modestly higher protein. We're not talking about those very high-protein, low-carb diets. We're talking about modestly higher, so something that Australians would be quite familiar with, as well as lower GI carb diet. And I'm going to take for granted that you know what the glycemic index is because you're Australian. So our hypothesis was that it would be superior to the conventional healthy diet, that it would not just be in terms of um, diabetes prevention, it would also be in terms of preventing re-rate weight regain or what's called weight loss maintenance because as you know we we can all lose weight by different mechanisms the challenge is to keep it off so we also wanted to look at physical activity strategies so we compared a moderate kind of walking strategy with um, a more intense kind of jogging activity but for fewer minutes a day we included children and adults, and tonight I'm just going to talk about the adults. And we did it across the whole lifespan. We included people as young as 25. In a observational analysis, we will also look at the effect of sleep and habitual stress, because there is some evidence that even if you are eating well, eating healthy diet, and you are exercising well, if you are sleep deprived and if you are stressed all the time, you will still develop type 2 diabetes. And of course, we're looking at lots of other factors that might influence diabetes risk as well. So Preview actually has two types of studies, major studies in um, the people that we, we did. First was this randomized controlled trial, and some of our participants are here tonight from the Sydney group. They were chosen because or selected, they volunteered, and we had to screen them for risk factors for prediabetes. They had to have a calculated risk score according to the find risk, which is the Finnish calculator, of above 12. And they had to have a BMI, a body mass index, above 25. So they were defined as overweight or obese. And they had to have either impaired fasting glucose or impaired glucose tolerance or both um, to be um, eligible for the study. Now, Edith, Professor Edith Feskins is here tonight, and she was the work package leader of the population studies. So these are like natural experiments where you can look at um, different diets, different composition, different 
um, lifestyle factors in a much larger and longer way, but without a specific intervention. And there are some interesting findings coming out about glycemic index and about protein specifically. And they, they were done in order to look at whether the, the results in the random, randomized controlled trial would make um, possibly be applied to actual populations. So we had two phases in preview. It's called a group lifestyle modification with fading frequency of contact. So the weight loss phase was just two weeks, sorry, eight weeks, <laughs> two months, two months, eight weeks long, and we used the meal replacements. The, if they lost at least 8% of their body weight, in those eight weeks, they were eligible to enter the weight loss maintenance phase. And that phase lasted almost three years. Three years and that involved a group-based behavior modification um, intervention. And we can see it in terms of fading, fading frequency of contact with the health professionals every fortnight during the weight loss phase, every fortnight during the preparation for weight loss maintenance, monthly in the action phase where they put the instructions into action, and then an adherence phase where we saw them every three to six months. So in total, they, they came to see us 18 times as visits, but they also came because they were in a research study on seven occasions called a clinical investigation day, where they gave up almost half their day, most of their day, to be um, examined with glucose tolerance tests and hundreds of pages of um, questionnaires. So we owe them a lot. In phase one, just a few words about this phase. These total meal replacements that we used provided every micronutrient, every macronutrient that you need um, for life. You could actually follow them for a year if you want to. Not all meal replacements on the market do that. And Cambridge tasted good as well. They had to have four sachets a day, which meant they had a, a, a prescription of 810 calories per day. And it, because that's such a big reduction, it's a third or a half of usual calories, weight loss is absolutely guaranteed. There's no guesswork. You don't have to rely on your appetite. And they were allowed um, a good serve of vegetables twice a day that were salad vegetables, very low-calorie vegetables. So the weight loss was fast and very rewarding, very mot motivating. And no particular exercise prescription, which they were very pleased to hear about. And, of course, by the end of phase two, they are feeling like a different person. And their whole attitude now to lifestyle intervention is based on the fact that they very much want to maintain this, this weight loss. So they're ready to renovate lifestyle. So phase two is a basically a behavioral therapy. Um, it recognizes that people require support to change habits and eating and physical activity um, or the lack of them are just habits. So they were randomized to one or other diet at this stage, one higher in protein with lower GI carbs and for those of you who are interested in the numbers, that's what you see there. Um, that higher protein is it's not very high in Australian terms. Um, quite a lot of the population eat that amount of protein. The other diet had a moderate protein intake with a moderate GI. And basically what that meant was that they, they didn't have to make drastic reductions to what they already ate in terms of protein and GI. And then they were also, within each dietary group, 
they were randomized to one or other exercise strategy. So one strategy was high intensity, and for those who like the numbers you can see there, it meant you had to puff. But they worked the way up there. They didn't have to do that right from the word go. And they had to do it for roughly 15 minutes a day for five days a week. The other group was the moderate intensity, and that means basically a walk at a level um, rate where you can still talk. Okay, so that means we had four intervention groups. And you can see there, if you look at the plates, I think, oh, I can't, oh, can, I, can you see my cursor? Yes, you can. Okay, so you can see there that this plate has less protein than this plate, which is here, and you can see this plate here has more carbs, which looks like rice, I think, and this one is less carbs and it's low GI carbs. All the vegetables on the side are exactly the same. So there's two diets. And then you look at the person and you can see that one's walking and one's running. So those are the four intervention groups. And the only reason for mentioning them is that when we present the results, you'll see those abbreviations. So those abbreviations are MPMI, moderate protein, moderate intensity, high protein, moderate intensity, etc., etc. And really, it doesn't matter. You don't have to remember them. Um, now, I'm not sure he's in the audience. I think he's traveling overseas or he's, he's running a marathon somewhere because he feels so good. I'm not exaggerating. Findings at the end of phase one, the eight-week weight loss phase, we screened 15,500 people pre-screened them, either in the on the phone or in person, with half an hour each. It, it equated to five years, someone doing five years of work. Um, five and a half thousand people were given an oral glucose tolerance test. 2,326 people turned out to be eligible. And as is the usual case, two-thirds of them were women, average age 52, average body weight was 100 kilos. Now, compared to the other diabetes prevention studies, our subjects were heavier, they had a higher BMI, and they were, um, I think they had a higher fasting glucose level. So they were more at risk than those in other studies. 79% of those who were eligible achieved 8% weight loss or more, four out of five. And actually the figure's higher because some of the people didn't who were eligible didn't start. So if they started, they had an 84% chance of achieving that weight loss. In fact, many lost a lot more. The average was 11%. So if you weigh 100 kilos, 11 kilos were lost in eight weeks. Now, to show you what the findings were at three years, the participants who completed the full protocol were 945. These are the people that did everything that we asked of them, including the research aspects, including those clinical in investigation days. Um, it's still a very high number. And surprisingly, we were a bit unexpected. We did not realize what was happening for a while. There were hardly any cases of diabetes, only 62. That's an incidence of 4%. And it's much lower than the what we expected based on our power calculations, their statistical power. We were expecting a rate of 13% or 290 people to have developed type 2 diabetes. So we were just a little bit too good at what we tried to do. So among the dropouts, people who withdrew for one or other reason, we don't know their risk of diabetes. And what we do know is that 20% approximately of the people who did complete the study no longer had prediabetes. So they'd gone into prediabetes remission which was a good result. Now, some other surprising findings to show you. This is our weight loss maintenance curve. 
And you can see there's no differences between the four groups. Um, it doesn't matter which one they are. They're not statistically different. But what you can see is that they continued to lose weight in the weight maintenance phase, that they kept that weight off for 12 months. They gained a little bit as time went by. But at this stage here at three years, one in three still maintained an 8% or greater weight loss. Now, you've probably heard figures like 95% of people will regain the weight they've lost. Well, in this case, we, we have achieved much more than we expected, and certainly we're very proud of that achievement. So body, body, body fat, it wasn't just muscle mass that was going down, it was also the fat, um, actual fat tissue, which we measured with special machines. So yes, they were gaining a bit back, but look how much they've They've continued to um, keep keep their body fat down. And so my glass is half full. I think that is a fantastic achievement. You can also see that that weight loss is also associated with less insulin resistance. It goes insulin resistance, the thing that you want to avoid as you get older. It means that you, you are pushing your beta cells that produce insulin very hard. So insulin sensitivity um, improved a lot and it stayed well um, within good limits for the rest of the study. Now, the question of did they comply with our instructions um, about diet? And the answer is yes and no. So we did have a difference that's statistically different between the two groups. There's actually, um, there's actually, uh, I won't use the cursor, the orange and the red curves are the two high-protein groups. So yes, they ate an average of one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. The other two groups are almost superimposed on top of each other. They had about 0.88 kilograms per kilogram of body weight. But what you can see is that for some reason, everyone increased their protein intake as a result of the instructions that were given. And in terms of GI, we are still none the wiser. We're still crunching the numbers. There's a lot of data to analyze in preview. For every single person in preview, we have 10,000 columns of data. It's enormous. So there's a lot of number crunching to come. One of the pieces of evidence that we have um, is a subgroup of subjects who were actually willing to undergo an MRI of their liver. And what you can see there is that amongst those participants, the higher their protein intake, the lower their liver fat or the bigger the change in their liver fat. So something is happening with the higher protein diet, which improves um, insulin sensitivity in the liver. So the big question is, can we translate this to the real world? And the real world is quite different from the research world. Um, the research involved a lot of form filling, a lot of work on um, a lot of employees. We've worked out that there were 300 people were employed as a result of um, the preview intervention study all around the world. And some of those people are here tonight, and I'm very proud to be part of that group. So the next step in preview is, just, is translation. Research does not end with the publication of a research paper in a scientific journal. The next step is to make an impact, to disseminate those findings, to identify the people that will benefit most from an intervention, so you can use the risk calculator. Some of you will be very surprised. You may be only 30 years of age, but your risk calculation may show that you are increased risk. Um, I want us to target 
all age groups, not just the baby boomers. I want to particularly target the people before pregnancy, so the women before pregnancy, because the women are in charge of the pantry and the fridge in most houses. Um, and if we do it before pregnancy, we increase the chances that we have a child who is at less risk of developing obesity as a child and um, diabetes and cardiovascular disease as a young adult. I think we need to make clear to health professionals, to the public, that we need to separate the weight loss phase from the lifestyle change phase Asking everybody to do everything at once is asking too much. So we recommend the use of diet replacements um, for this purpose. We don't do it in isolation. We're doing it in the context of many other studies that have been done using diet, um, total diet replacements. And some of you may be aware that they've achieved diabetes remission in um, people with early diabetes using total diet replacements. And we need to increase the confidence of the people that can support you um, in using total diet replacements, including dietitians and GPs and diabetes educators. And as a result of preview, we can be more efficient about that process. We can offer it in a group session, not one-to-one -one or face-to-face -face with just one health professionals, professional. We can do it at a much more cost-effective basis. But importantly, they do need support in one form or another. The one we used in preview we called Premit, and it's it's been published. You can have a look at the actual um toolbox that we used. Um, it's all evidence-based. It's not being tested for the first time. It was just done using things that had already been proven to be helpful. So you've probably heard of cognitive behavior modification for lots of things, for insomnia, for depression, and other mental conditions. It's behavior modification. So self-regulation through stages of change and coping skills and overcoming barriers and overcoming the lapses and to see lapses in weight and weight regain as normal things to expect um, and also to get back on the horse um, and keep going. Lots of practical tips. So Preview resources that we used will be available. These are the Sydney manuals that we used. Um, they are available soon. They will be free of charge. Um, they'll be available to those who want to use them. This included handouts. And we also have an e-learning module, which is already online on Preview website, Preview's website. So Preview's website is just previewstudy.com or just Google Preview Study. Fabulous. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so now what I'm going to do is introduce our panellists, along with Jenny. Jenny's going to come and sit at the front and chair the session. Um, but we have Professor Anne Rabin. You've heard about these people. Um, they're distinguished international colleagues who've really played a huge role as part of the coordinating team for the preview study. Anne was the project coordinator of the entire thing, the preview project, and she is the head of the obesity research group in the Department of Nutrition, Exercise and Sport of the Faculty of Science at the University of Copenhagen. And she's had decades of experience working in industry and academia on obesity, human nutrition, and of course, diabetes. Um, Professor Edith Feskins from Wageningen University in the Netherlands will also join us in the panel. And Edith is Professor of Nutrition and Metabolic Syndrome and leader of the preview observational and longitudinal population studies that you also heard about, the 170,000 people who took part in that component across five countries, focusing on the specific role of protein, carbohydrate, carbohydrates and so forth in the development of type 2 diabetes, and she again is another very distinguished researcher in this area. Um, Professor Stephen Collagiuri, he's one of our own from the University of Sydney here at the Charles Perkins Centre, 
He is the leader of what we call the solutions domain at the uh, Charles Perkins Center. He's professor of metabolic health, director, co-director of the Bowdoin Institute at the Charles Perkins Center. Uh, and he's also co-director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on Physical Activity, Nutrition and Obesity. So please may the three panelists come to the front, have a seat, and then each in turn, probably we'll start with Anne, we'll make a, a brief statement. Thank you very much for this very kind presentation. And uh, I'm very, uh, <laughs> in respect of all you coming here tonight, it's really amazing to see and also uh, to see some of the Sydney participants uh, in the preview project. So uh, thank you to Jenny for organizing it and also to Stephen, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's an honor to come here from, from far away in Copenhagen. It's, as you said, in the other side of the world. And it's my first time here, so I'm very excited about seeing some more of Sydney and Australia while I'm here. So thank you also for that opportunity. So, uh, important take-home messages from, from preview and how can we prevent diabetes? It's a big word, it's a big question, but uh, as Jenny also uh, showed and mentioned a few times, there's no doubt that this large weight loss uh, is really helpful. It's a fast and large weight loss and it seems to be really motivating uh, for, uh, for people to, to really start changing lifestyle and to do something with their diet and exercise that can keep weight down and also uh, reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes in these uh, cases where there is a risk, a higher risk with, with the pre-diabetic state. And uh, we also see, saw in other, we, there were recent results from other studies supporting this, that the larger the weight loss, actually the, the higher the risk or the higher the benefits are in uh, relation to uh, developing type 2 diabetes. So there is less risk of that, the larger the weight loss. So it's really very helpful. So how can you keep it down? <laughs> it seems like from our study, from our results that it may not have that much importance if you, um, as you also said, stick to this diet or this exercise as long as it's something you like and you can keep it. As long as it's healthy and you can stick to it, you can maybe um, just do what you prefer within the healthy lifestyle pattern of some kind. So um, I think that's also a very important message and goes very nicely hand in hand with all the new uh, research coming out on individualized nutrition and personalized nutrition. So um, maybe a lot of medical doctors would agree that, um, or a, at least a few, that you don't give the same prescription to every individual that have the same disease. You individualize, and I think that's also something very important for, for our type of, of research, to individualize the, the diet and the exercise. So it's pleasurable and you want to continue. Um, something else that we did not investigate in preview were something I think from other data is really important that we could maybe convince the policymakers that differentiated taxes on foods and drinks. For instance, uh, it has been shown several times that uh, sugar-rich drinks uh, make doesn't give a lot of uh, fullness doesn't give a lot of satiety compared with if you eat the same amount of calories. So uh, if you could perhaps persuade um, policymakers to differentiate the tax on some of the foods and drinks we know are less, um, less healthy or can increase the risk of becoming overweight or obese and get type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And also, uh, what I notice in some countries uh, that they don't have, that we have, for instance, in Denmark and the Netherlands, I'm not saying that we are leaner, but we bike more, we cycle more. So we have a lot of opportunities to cycle to work and to uh, really, it's, sometimes it's much faster going through Copenhagen on a bike than in a car or in a bus. And therefore, I often choose the bike because it's faster but it's also healthier. 
So they have really built out the cycle lanes in Copenhagen. The past 10 years, we have cycle highways going through the city where there are no cars. You can just bike all the time and it's really nice and you get fast through. So that's another thing for policymakers to, to ask them to, um, to do more with the environment. So it's easy and the preferred choice to do the exercise instead of taking the bus or the car. Yeah, I am from the Netherlands. Hello. Uh, yeah, it's not my first time here in Sydney, but the last time was 20 years ago and I was heavenly pregnant. And that reminds me of Jenny's uh, slide. I come back to that. Um, our experience in the Netherlands, we have somewhat less obesity than in many other countries. And we think it's just because of the bicycling. <laughs> Maybe also the gardening, that <laughs> we are not sure, but you know, the cycling is definitely something typical for the Netherlands, as some of you may know. Uh, we have experience with the diabetes prevention program, a little bit similar like the Finnish one Jenny prescribed in her earlier slides. And actually we started on that 20 years ago and it took us 20 years of research, academic research, implementation research, calculating cost effectiveness until we uh, convinced, well, not really convinced, but by chance, we now have a minister who says, oh, prevention of diabetes, that's useful. Uh -huh. And uh, he now, as of January 1, has, has offered to have uh, what we have, what we call a combined lifestyle intervention. So going to a dietitian for diet advice and going to a physiotherapist or a sports instructor for exercise advice for people with obesity to have that in our basic insurance. And this is a huge difference, you know. So this is really a milestone in terms of prevention thinking of the, of the politicians. Now, is that enough? No, I don't think so, because I think preview, preview showed that, yeah, that maybe the diet is, you know, you need to do whatever you like is healthy and you feel like able to sustaining it for the rest of your life. I think that's important. But what, what preview also added is, is this first eight weeks of weight loss, more than 8% weight loss. And I, I think that is, that is very important in terms of resetting the body somehow to a healthier state. And then, you know, preventing regain, I think mentally is easier than losing weight gradually. Losing weight gradually is perhaps somehow, you know, boring, counting calories, all kinds of diets. You know them all. I follow them all. Nothing worked. But this one is working. And then you feel better. You feel more positive. And then you start thinking about, you know, building up your diet or exercise pattern again. And it works in a more positive way. So I think that is what we haven't done in the Netherlands yet. We have investigated it, but not implemented yet. And that's what I think we should do as well, based on these results. But, you know, we maybe need to tease out some data some more, but I think I'm, uh, yeah, I like this very much. What I did on the, on the, in the previous study on the population-based studies, we looked at glycemic index and protein, and we saw that there was some effect also in the general population on the longer term. So from that point of view, I think the basic diet components chosen in preview were very wise. So it's definitely important to check that. And also the pro high protein or mild pro the moderate protein content or glycemic index, which is very popular in Australia, but not so much in Europe yet, we haven't addressed that properly. So that is also something for us to explore further. And to come back to pregnancy, I, I, I think Jenny raised a very good point. We are now working in our health system. We deliver our babies at home. I, I don't know if you realize that, but that's typically Dutch. We have midwives and we deliver our babies at home. Midwives are very nice ladies. They don't know much about nutrition because they're not educated in that. So now we have a project that we could link our dietitians with the midwives and try to get them the education they need. And the midwives want that, they see the need. The dietitians also want that. They, they want to reach the, the pre-pregnancy or the pregnancy uh, women. So I think that is also a good opportunity for the next years to try to improve diabetes prevention in the Netherlands. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Your turn. Thank you. <laughs> so um, we've heard the results of the preview study. And uh, we also know from the other studies that Jenny mentioned that... Uh, 
we can achieve uh, prevention of diabetes, at least in a research setting. And our challenge has been now over at least the past uh, 15 years to translate this into effective community-based programs. One of the recurring themes with respect to some of the difficulties that we've had in achieving that is how seriously people take diabetes and how people rate um, various diseases in terms of how serious they think they are and what they would be prepared to do in order to uh, prevent them. And I think Australians are notoriously difficult to get to uh, involve in uh, routine screening programs and uh, intervening. So there are various ways of looking at this, but perhaps if I could ask you to participate if you feel comfortable. Um, so I'm just going to ask you in relation to a series of uh, three uh, conditions. So how many of you would do what was done in preview? Eight weeks of uh, three meal replacements a day. Four. 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 <laughs> Sorry, four. <laughs> well, eight weeks. Eight, eight weeks. four. Four milkshakes. Okay, right. Then. <laughs> um, so, and then, and then whatever the other interventions were for another three years. How many of you would be prepared to do that if you knew that that was effective in reducing your risk by half of developing dementia. Oh, there you go. <laughs> How many of you would be prepared to do that to prevent diabetes? Pretty mm. He's surprised. Yeah. I am surprised. Yeah. And how many of you would be prepared to do that if you could prevent cancer? More. Yeah. So, right. yeah. so I think that you've obviously... Uh, are an audience who have uh, either participated in preview or have uh, <laughs> been really impressed. No, really impressed because yeah, a lot right. of people unfortunately don't take diabetes seriously. And uh, we know from the stuff that Jenny said, it is a very serious condition associated with an increased risk of a whole host of uh, other conditions. And I think we really do struggle to engage people uh, with diabetes prevention programs. So, uh, we, we, it still remains a challenge, but if we can come across more audiences like yourself, then we might be getting along the way of, uh, of making uh, the impact that we need to. Thank you. So I need to draw this session to a close, and I thank you again for coming along tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.